Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I'm just trying to get to Lordsburg, guys. We'll get you there eventually. Mm -hmm. You might get shot at on the way, but uh, we'll make it. Don't you worry, buddy. Good. I got business in Lordsburg, Josh. Jason's a a serious businessman here on this episode of Awesome Movie Year. (laughs) I'm a wildcatter of the West. You are. In this season of Awesome Movie Year, we are talking about the films of 1939, possibly the greatest year in the history of cinema. We're going to continue examining that question. We'll give you the final decision at the epilogue if if it is or not. And... Because of that, I feel like this season is packed with movies that are considered among the greatest of all time. We just talked about The Wizard of Oz in our last episode, and now we are talking about John Ford's Stagecoach, often considered possibly the greatest Western or one of the greatest Westerns of all time. And usually in this episode of the season, we talk about a notable debut from a major filmmaker. And we switched that up because there really wasn't anything like that in 1939 to pick out. And because of the way the studio system worked, debut films weren't as notable in a way during this period. So we decided to still stick with talking about a major filmmaker, but just a film from a major filmmaker. And John Ford certainly fits the bill. And Stagecoach, I think John Ford maybe directed three movies in 1939 because we were looking at him on his own for a uh, an audience choice category, possibly. But this is the big one. It's sort of his launch of of the, this new era of Westerns, I guess. It was interesting to me to read that, you know, we think of Westerns as so huge in like the 40s and 50s, especially, but they were slightly out of favor when John Ford made this film. They were considered relics of the silent era, and this really reinvigorated the Western genre. I think every time we cover a Western, uh, we're at a time where it's like, well, Westerns weren't uh, in vogue then. They were considered uh, old timey and not good box office. Like you could say the same thing right now. We could say it no matter when we've ever covered a Western. Yeah, I don't know. I guess maybe did we not do one in like 1953? Because that was probably a time when they were churning them out more so. Um, I don't know. I blocked. Right. Yeah, I don't recall. <laughs> but uh, it's in. No, it was interesting to me because I just figure, yeah, when we're in the like 60s or 70s, that's definitely a time where we've got, you know, revisionist Westerns or in the 90s when we talked about Unforgiven, the Clint Eastwood film. Um, but this seems like an era when Westerns were a big thing. And I guess there was sort of a lull here. Yeah, you had said it's like uh, considered the greatest Western of all time by some. I think, you know. I remember the first time I saw North by Northwest and like the crop duster plane sequence. And I was like, well, yeah, that's cool. But what, you know, I didn't understand the relevance of it because it's like, so it was so just uh, momentous and epic at the time. Right. And it kind of led to all these, um, you know, kind of ideas of how you can shoot things and using whatever effects or stunt sequences. But I think when we talk about this movie, you know, there's that great scene. Um, there's a couple of great, you know, scenes on the stagecoach, Josh. Mm, much of the movie uh, where takes place be- on the stagecoach. Yeah. Where they're being mm-hmm. chased or have to fight. And there are a lot of stunts and battles. And uh, I think that's why it maybe has that reputation as like moving the genre forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a big chase sequence toward the end of the film 
with the Apaches shooting at the stagecoach and the characters on the stagecoach firing back. And it's this big battle. And it, to me, it still looks pretty amazing. I mean, it's not just like, oh, wow, how did they do that in 1939? But like, it's still a really well-constructed sequence. And, and that definitely is probably what this movie is, is best known for. I think that is the highlight of the film. And uh, shout out to Yakima Kanut or Kanut. I'm not exactly sure who was the stunt coordinator on this film and a lot of others. He had an uh, honorary Academy Award in 1967 given to him. But he's the one who did that amazing stunt of uh, mounting the horses as they're running 45 miles per hour, climbing on top, getting dragged underneath by them after they throw them off. That's a pretty amazing stunt. Yeah, that. And again, I feel like you watch that now and it still looks amazing. And, you know, of course, they didn't have nearly the uh, safety regulations slash, uh, you know, precautions or whatever in place during this era. And for him to do that and pull that off is pretty astounding. Right. As I was reading about it, it definitely bummed me out. And um, I would say probably took away a half star rating for me learning how they tripped up the horses and killed a lot of them because they broke their legs. Oh, yeah. Well, that is unfortunate. Mm. That's uh, not so, between that and uh, the um, depiction of Native Americans. This uh, movie is a relic. It is. But I mean, maybe we'll talk more about this later. But I've seen a lot of Westerns. This movie is a lot less racist than a lot of other Westerns <laughs> from from this era in the next couple decades, really. I think it uh, not to give it a pass necessarily, but it's really fairly mild comparatively, I think. I mean, he didn't murder him as badly as the other murderer murdered that other guy. Right, Josh? <laughs> right. It's it's right. No, no, I'm not saying that it isn't, but I think there's there's so much worse that it's it's more passively racist than a lot of these Westerns where they have Native American, you know, villains or whatever, where it's much more actively uh, offensive than this film is, I think. Mm. So for whatever that's worth. Um, this movie was a success on its release. Um, in addition to its current classic status, it grossed $1.1 million on its budget of 531000 ish As again, this whole season, all of these box office figures are always kind of wonky, but that's probably what it was. It was also nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Art Direction, Best Black and White Cinematography, and Best Editing. It won two of the awards, uh, Best Supporting Actor for Thomas Mitchell, who plays the Drunk Doctor, and Best Original Score. And it was uh, it was generally uh, acclaimed by critics. It's interesting to see what critics say about this uh, in, in sort of two areas. One is what we were just talking about related to the Western and how it's kind of, even in 1939, seen as this freaky genre or whatever. And the other is John Wayne, who we haven't mentioned yet, but this was his big breakout role. He'd been in a lot of B-movies and small parts and worked with John Ford a bunch of times, and they had this rapport, and Ford insisted on casting John Wayne in this film, even though he wasn't well-known, and this became this huge breakout role. But of course, at the time that critics are reviewing this, John Wayne is basically an unknown. So, so Josh, I wanted to jump back to something best black and white cinematography yeah i mean for for many decades the cinematography i think into the 60s the cinematography category was split into black and white and color until 
you know, black and white films became so uncommon that it was not relevant. Anymore. I know. Now, if you make one, you'll, you'll have a better chance of getting that cinematography uh, Oscar nom if you do it well. Um, Ford said of John Wayne's future in the film, supposedly he wrote this to Louise Platt, uh, you know, who was a co-star in this film as well. He said of, of uh, John Wayne, he'll be the biggest star ever because he is the perfect everyman. Well, you got that one right. Yes, I mean <laughs> it's one of these stories, and I feel like there's there's these kinds of stories a lot with with big breakout performances from people who became famous, where the like director you know says, "No, I know this person. We have to have them in this role," and they insist on it, and they turn out to be right. And John Ford, you know, I think put up some of his own money or reduced the budget or something like that, and made compromises because he knew John Wayne had to be the star of this movie, and he certainly was correct. Yeah, but it would be fun to like hear like all those like no, I demand we cast Skeet Ulrich in uh, in this film. He's the next uh, Johnny Depp. He's all right, Skeet Ulrich. Yeah, I wasn't movies. knocking him. I'm just saying I remember that that was you know that's the type of thing. It goes both ways, right? Josh. Yes, that is true, and I'm sure there are other stories like that where uh, directors have insisted on casting someone and it turned out to be a disaster. But that's not the case here, John Ford. That was not a knock on good old Skeet Ulrich. Yeah, he's, Josh. he's all right. He's all right. <laughs> so, yeah, so critics were mostly positive, although sometimes in a muted way, I guess. Uh, Frank S. Nugent in the New York Times said, in one superbly expansive gesture, which we can call stagecoach, John Ford has swept aside 10 years of artifice and talky compromise and has made a motion picture that sings a song of camera. It moves and how beautifully it moves across the plains of Arizona, skirting the sky-reaching mesas of Monument Valley beneath the piled-up cloud banks which every photographer dreams about, and through all the old-fashioned, but never really outdated, periods of prairie travel in the scalp-raising 70s, when Geronimo's Apaches were on the warpath. Here, in a sentence, is a movie of the grand old school, a genuine rib-thumper and a beautiful sight to see. Oh, rib thumper. Yeah. Those uh those are tough. You better bear in and get a pillow <laughs> I, for the sides of your seat. I do love that, of course, when they're mentioning the 70s here, it's the 1870s. It's the 1870s, yeah. right? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the excitement comes from the way that he shot it and those sequences. And to me, like watching it, I was like, come on, give me more. Like, because we get that big sequence towards the end of Act Two. And I was like ready for that at that point in time. So I wanted more of that. Yeah. This is um, the first movie that John Ford shot in Monument Valley, which became heavily associated with his work in Westerns. And it is beautiful. I mean, part of the impressive nature of like the stunt sequences and whatever is the, the mix of the location shooting and the studio shooting. And it looks gorgeous. And it look, you can get the sense of like the wide open spaces here, you know, in between these little towns. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Ford obviously made this whole area famous as a place to shoot, right? Uh, you know, would we would we say it's akin to what Burt Reynolds did in the seventies with uh, Georgia and Northern Florida? Sure, we went. We might say that as scholars, but uh, you know, this Ford, as you as you are aware, Josh shot so many movies in Monument Valley. This was like the home away from home. It's also kind of interesting watching those great landscapes and then like the very obvious sound stages of the day, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. But again, I feel like it's integrated pretty well. 
Um, I think it is, except those stagecoach scenes are very clearly like, hey, we're just going to put a background behind you and have this go, boop, 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 you know, guys moving the coach. Right. I mean, that's that's things. what it is. It's, I'm not trying to say that it like fooled me or whatever, or that it would fool anyone. But I think the the transitions and you can understand the the physical space and whatever as he's shifting between the location and the studio is done is done quite well. I'm not knocking it again. It's 19, it's the 1930s here, right? So like, you know, what the fact that he was able to shoot everything that he did and those giant sequences uh, out in the open is like really impressive. So, you know, I agree. Yes. Good, good for you, John Ford. You are deserving of the four Oscars you won. Still the most ever from director. I mean, he's no Burt Reynolds, right? But, uh... well, but um, who is Josh? Yeah. Who is? <laughs> So Variety in their uh, staff review, in their uh, always uh, interesting. Uh, I'm going to interrupt you. I don't. I don't know what you're going to say, but it is the 1930s in Variety. So I'm really hoping for like, wow, the whiz bang kid gives you know <laughs> gives him the old onesie twosie right right in the bread basket. Yeah, it's not quite like that, but they do have their own uh, unique way of uh, of writing in Variety, which they still kind of have. So uh, they said. Sweeping and powerful drama of the American frontier, Stagecoach displays potentialities that can easily drive it through as one of the surprise big grocers of the year. Without strong marquee names, Picture nevertheless presents wide range of exploitation to attract and will carry far through word of mouth after it gets rolling. Directorially, production is John Ford in peak form, sustaining interest and suspense throughout and presenting exceptional characterizations. In maintaining a tensely dramatic pace all the way, Ford still injects numerous comedy situations and throughout sketches his characters with sincerity and humaneness. It's absorbing drama without the general theatrics usual to picturizations of the early West. Did you find comedy in there? I didn't see I mean, yeah, I don't know about comedy. I mean, you know, maybe some like lightheartedness, especially in the, uh, the way that the drunken doctor is continually... Uh, stealing the samples of the traveling whiskey salesman or whatever. I mean, in a way, it is kind of sad. <laughs> this guy is a raging alcoholic, but it is played a bit for laughs. So I, I don't know about comedy really necessarily, but I think it's it's a mix of these suspenseful moments of danger and more lighthearted, just bantery interactions with the various passengers on the stagecoach. And then, of course, some of the romance stuff between John Wayne and Claire Trevor. So, I mean, I liked that. I think we've, you know, we've just been really talking about the the stunts and the technical achievements of John Ford here, but I think this movie works very well in presenting its characters also, that it works well as drama that we start this movie and these people all kind of seem like Western stereotypes and they develop into characters that you can invest in over time. So I was up and down on that. The evil banker, I thought that was a little unclear, even at the end, like when he gets arrested for bank fraud or embezzlement. Like, I thought that wasn't clear. Um, the Dallas character that uh, the Ringo kid falls in love with, uh, John Wayne's character, I think it was implied that she was a, a lady of the evening, a prostitute, but never, obviously, it's 1939. Maybe they never. Yeah, really I mean, that's a production that. code thing. They can't say that. It seemed pretty obvious to me. Right. So uh, a little up and down on it. I did want to mention, uh, Claire Trevor, you had mentioned how this was John Wayne's first lead in an A picture. 
Uh, Claire Trevor has her name first on this. She was the biggest star of this group. Yes, and that was part of the compromise that Ford made in order to get John Wayne in the movie was to bill Claire Trevor first. But it really is an ensemble thing. I mean, as much as John Wayne is, you know, is very charismatic and watching this movie, you can see why he would go on to become a big star. And he's the one now that we're all really familiar with. Like, the Ringo Kid isn't necessarily the full lead of this film. I mean, it really takes time to develop a whole range of different characters and give them all storylines. And we don't even see him until about 20 minutes into the movie, right, probably. Right, yeah. When he uh, he shows up on the on the road between, uh, where do they start? Somewhere in Arizona, and they're ending up in Lordsburg, where Jason has New some Mexico. business. New Mexico. I got a lot of business there, so shout out to all my business associates mm. in Lordsburg, New Mexico. Yes, indeed. We're going to do some business together, me and you guys. So finally, Jay Carmody in the Washington Evening Star said, depending upon story rather than box office names, this narrative of the opening of the West manages to be one of the more significant achievements of the cinema in recent months. John Wayne and Claire Trevor are its chief players, but that makes no difference because the film produced by Walter Wanger and directed by John Ford tells a story that is dramatic beyond the necessity of using players whose names will pack the theater. The cynical moviegoer can say of Stagecoach that it is a glorified horse opera. In other words, a Western, produced on a more elaborate scale than the usual picture of its type. Hokum, let it be said, never has been more completely and widely used. I'm sorry, Josh, I... Uh... Stop paying attention because I've been dreaming of a horse opera. Is it? That's a great a phrase. common term for Westerns back then, I believe. <laughs> I mean, it would be a good band name, right, Dave? Yeah, I love it. I'm great. <laughs> you know, we had space operas. We talked when we talked about like Star Wars. That's a that's a term that we still use. So, uh, you know, what about a what if there was a horse in there? A horse space opera? Yeah, that mm. would be a whole different kind of deal. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think. He's giving it, and and in the rest of the review, he does this as well as he's giving it kind of a lot of backhanded compliments, like "Oh, it's a cheesy western, but it's really done well," you know. And I think that was a lot of the praise here from critics at the time, you know, because this genre was sort of out of favor at the moment. Well, you know, if a horse sings opera, I'm there. You're just really, you're just really <laughs> stuck on this, are you not? Josh, what about that horse who walked into the bar? What, what it, and the bartender said, why the long face? Oh, that's a classic. <laughs> it sure is. Thank you, Jason. When are we going to find out the punchline? <laughs> <laughs> You're a little slow, Dave. I'll, I'll explain it to you later. So, Jason, had you watched uh, Stagecoach before? I'd never seen it, Josh. I've seen other Ford movies and other Ford Wayne collabs. Obviously, The Searchers, probably most famous for me. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was happy to watch it, uh, but I'm mixed on it. Yeah. All right. I, I saw it a few years ago and, um, I, I liked it. I mean, it's one of those movies that it's such a, I mean, and we'll probably keep saying this about movies this season. It's such an right. iconic classic that you come to it with various expectations or, you know, there are certain moments or lines, not so much lines in this film, but moments that are so well known that you're just kind of waiting for that to happen. Like the, the chase scene here. But I liked it quite a bit then, and I, I really quite liked it again. And I think, to me, what I was impressed with here is like the technical achievements are great, but that it's a it's a good story with interesting characters. The performances are good all around, not just the big breakout performance from John Wayne. Um, so, you know, I quite enjoyed it. I think when I first saw it, 
Um, I had it on my, you know, top 10 first time watches of the year list in that year, uh, prior to when, uh, you know, we've done that on piecing it together. So I don't think we ever talked about it, Dave, on that. Mm-hmm. But um, that year, I definitely had it there. So had you seen it before, Dave? No, I hadn't. And I think I mentioned on one of the previous uh, Western episodes we've done that, like, I've never really been big into these kinds of movies. So I haven't seen a lot of them. Yeah, I wasn't. I probably mentioned this, too. I mean, I remember as a kid and my dad was a big Western guy. And I was if he would be watching them, I was just like, oh, these are these are annoying or they all seem kind of the same or whatever, but right. I've, I've gotten to appreciate Westerns quite a lot since then. And, uh, and uh, you know, John Ford is a master of the Western certainly. Yeah, he definitely is. So, uh, anything else about the background of this film you want to talk about, Jason? John Ford's 1939, Josh, it's like a Victor Fleming thing, like in our last episode. Right. So the, the, the movies he released in 39 Stagecoast, young Mr. Lincoln drums along the Mohawk. Pretty good year for this guy. Yeah. I mean, not quite to that level of, of Victor Fleming, but I mean, yeah, amazing. And like I said, we were thinking of maybe even putting those three up for our audience choice category and we went with something else, but uh, it could have easily been that. I think this one probably overshadows those other two, but that's not to say that those aren't quite notable as well. And I mean, that's one of the things from this era that we also talked about last episode that both directors and actors worked so much more in this era than they do now. It's just wild if you look at like his um, kind of filmography from that point. I mean, you could probably pick him. You know, he was working since the the uh, teams, the 19 teams, Josh. Yes. But uh, I'm saying like, if you just look from like 39 on and it's like, okay, so, you know, he had that one great year. So then what? Next year, he does like The Grapes of Wrath, right? And then uh, How Green Was My Valley the year after that. And it just keeps going. And you're like, every year there's a, a Ford Apache or a My, My Darling Clementine or, you know, just Rio Grande. It's just constantly. Yeah, I mean, and it's amazing to have a career of that length and continue making movies that are notable and awarded for, you know, 50 plus years or whatever. Um, you know, that's and and through all those changes from you know silent short films to like new hollywood basically is the the arc of of john ford's career it's 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 absolutely amazing it's fun looking at all the collaborations that ford and uh wayne did together because like you know these are man's men here josh we're doing westerns and we're doing war pictures and we're doing rah-rah military things and everyone else is a bad yeah, this is certainly John Ford is a is a man's man director, but not in a negative way, I don't think. Right. So uh, we'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on Stagecoach. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1939, we are talking about major filmmaker John Ford and his film Stagecoach. And Jason, you were saying you were you were kind of mixed on this. What what do you think didn't really work for you here? Uh, what didn't work, like I said, I mean, you know, I'm watching this and I'm like, man, you know, with all these crappy remakes of movies, I wish I know, and I know they've remade this movie a bunch, but this feels like a movie that's ripe for a current remake where you can, I mean, it's kind of like uh, any of these, I, I guess in a way, something like Snowpiercer or Bullet Train, right? You can also argue that those are similar in uh, form, but I like the action a lot. I wasn't as invested in the characters as you. I thought they were 
a little one note. There were no like kind of turns of the dial for it for me. Um, so yeah, I was I was more in on the action than I was on the uh, story beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's fair. And and while I was definitely invested, and I think I found that notable this time, it's not like these are super complex characters. And in one of the reviews, um, I can't remember which one, it, elsewhere beyond what I quoted, talked about how you know, this is kind of on purpose that John Ford is presenting you with these archetypal Western characters because sure. that's what he wants. And because he wants you to see this as a, as the sort of quintessential Western story. Well, what is quintessential is John Wayne comes out of this thing like a cat and that dude is charismatic as all get out in this thing. And like, man, talk about the birth of a movie star that doesn't get any bigger than that. John Ford was Right on that. Yes, he was. And yeah, I mean, obviously, we know John Wayne from, you know, dozens of Westerns that he made over the course of many decades, much like John Ford throughout this sort of evolution of Hollywood. And, you know, this is young John Wayne, but he has he has that absolutely that charisma. And you can also buy, you know, this is one of these things, movies from this era, from the 30s into, you know, and the 40s into the 50s, I think you know, one of the things you kind of have to accept is that characters fall in love really, really quickly. And I mean, I feel like I I could see that uh, Claire Trevor's character would be ready to marry John Wayne after knowing him for like one day. Well, wait a second. I mean, yes, but also we're talking about, like you said, the 1870s, right? right? That's true too. She, she's a prostitute who's been run out of town. It's not like she's got a lot of options going on here, right? He's like, I got a ranch. It's in Mexico. We'll live. We'll have a nice time. Like, seems like not a bad deal considering her circumstances in life. Well, yeah, absolutely. But I think that the movie means you to believe that also she really is in love with this guy. It's not just like, hey, look, this is a good deal. It'll work out for me. Like, she really does love him. Well, Josh, I think you should be careful in your conversations with prostitutes going forward. Because I'm going to believe that they're in love. She loves me, man. <laughs> Did you not believe that the movie means you to think that they're in love? Of course. Yeah. Of okay. course. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. But, um, you know, I, what I'm thinking about is like Tom Cruise right now, right? Like who's the closest thing we have to this all-American like superstar who you could do this with? Like, I mean, you know, hey, we're in love two minutes into the thing, right? Like we almost saw that in um, The Last Mission Impossible, I'd say. But yeah, I mean, who who else is there that is a star of this like uh, strata? Right. I mean, that's one of the things that, that nowadays we don't have stars like that so much. But I think Tom Cruise is a good comparison. I mean, of course, Tom Cruise now is a lot older than John Wayne was when he made Stagecoach. But I mean, Tom Cruise in his early films, I think, has that same charisma and presence that John Wayne has here. And I mean, is someone breaking out right now that has that same level of charm. And I don't know. I mean, speaking of Tom Cruise, I feel like Glenn Powell, maybe, you know, who's in the, the recent Top Gun, maybe has that similar kind of charisma and is closer to the age that John Wayne is here. But is he going to become that level of movie star now that John Wayne did or that Tom Cruise did? I mean, I don't know if that's even possible. Well, at the time of recording, Glenn Powell's uh, new romantic comedy is out and uh, it is not getting good reviews at all. So right. this might be a step backwards for him to get there going forward. On the other hand, a poorly reviewed rom-com can still become a massive hit. So I, I feel like it's it's still possible for Glenn Powell. But I mean, that's just off the top of my do you head. Think, I know. Do you think it's going to be a hit? No, though? I don't. 
<laughs> but I still feel like Glennon Powell has a chance to become a huge movie star. And I think yeah. he does have that kind of charisma that we're talking about where it just hits you right away, even if a movie isn't good. Right. It's a different playbook nowadays, though. Yes. Right? Like Zendaya has that reach of someone who is a massive star, but you don't necessarily think of her as a massive movie star because she is, you know, she's a mass media star as well. Right. Right. So let's talk about Stagecoach some more, though. Um, what, did you have any other like favorite? Because this is a big ensemble. Like I was saying, it's not just John Wayne and Claire Trevor. Did you have any other favorite characters? Yeah, I did. I liked. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the whiskey uh, salesman Peacock. Yes, he was. He was a great. Like, oh dear me, <laughs> I have to get home to the missus in Kansas City. Kansas you know, City, like, Kansas, not Kansas City, Missouri. Right. Mm -hmm. I liked him, and I liked uh, uh, not Curly, who was like the abusive driver, but I liked the other driver, who was uh, quite good with the. Uh, well, my Mexican wife, all she makes me is. Free holy bean. That's good. <laughs> he's, he's a total character, man, you know? Yes, so. Andy Devine is that actor who is always, he always sounds like that. That's like his voice. That's not a voice he's doing for the character. That's just how he sounds. <laughs> when I was watching this movie, obviously we always joke around about like, my impressions on the show and like, oh, it's a John Wayne movie, but I was so delighted that I get to do this for a minute. <laughs> it is. Yeah, that that is that is pretty great. And he's a very fun character. And I like how he's, you know, they're allowing these characters to be kind of cowardly. He's always like, uh, no, let us not go directly into Indian territory and get murdered. How about we turn back? Dave, were you hoping? Were you hoping he would have gone all in on that impression there? Because oh, I was yeah. hoping for Me it. Too. Oh, I'm not going to yep. attempt that. You, you uh, did you? What? Which characters did you like? Yeah, I mean, I he is he is very entertaining, and I mean, I did like Thomas Mitchell, you know, who won the Oscar there. Oh yeah, he's quite as good, the yeah. drunk doctor because I feel like he shows up and you think he's kind of just a comic relief guy. I mean, he's drunk constantly, and they have the running bit of him stealing all the samples out of uh, the whiskey salesman, Mr. Peacock's uh, uh, satchel or whatever. And yet when we get to the moment where um, the uh, the wife of the military officer is giving birth and it's like suddenly his skills are actually required, he sobers up and it's not just like a goofy thing like, oh, get him sobered up. Like it becomes serious and he can focus and he does his job. And I thought Thomas Mitchell portrayed that whole range of, of personality and emotion really well. He has a nice moment with Claire Trevor when she is talking about, like, do you think I could really go off with the Ringo kid? And he's, he's like, it's not up to me or, you know, I, you, I don't need to give you permission or whatever, which I thought was also a nice moment because you expect movies from this era to just do the most sexist thing possible and it's like one moment where they don't where the man is like no woman you can make your own choice and i i appreciate yeah. that too as you said he did win the academy award for best supporting actor for this the other one i thought was a really fun performance was chris pin martin who was the uh kind of he always played like the mexican sidekick right and here he's like a mexican bartender who's married to a native american woman and he's uh he's just delightful in every scene that he's in yeah he is amusing and i mean you know on the other hand you want to talk about racism <laughs> the depiction of these mexican characters is not exactly uh nuanced and um he does have that native american wife which when it when it starts and she she shows up and you see their relationship 
And especially because the white characters who come in on the stagecoach are like, oh no, she's an Apache. Like, how could, like, we're all in danger from her or whatever. And he's like, no, no, she's my wife. And um, I thought, oh, maybe they're doing kind of a more more nuanced portrayal here of the Native Americans. And, you know, see, they're not like, it's not all savages or whatever. But then she and her, uh, I guess it's her family members or whatever, they just run off going back to the Apaches, presumably to tell them that this uh, stagecoach is there. And uh, so that's terrible. And also then he's like, eh, whatever, I can get another wife. You know, he even has, a, it's yeah. a joke comic, you know, it's a comic moment when he's like, oh, I could never replace that horse, but I can get another wife. But it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty cringy to hear that. Um, well, I mean, you know, we just mentioned our favorite supporting characters and not one of them was a woman. So, um, which is uh, really, I don't think the women had much depth. Uh, and again, I'm not going to fault them. We know the time period and how women were written a lot of the time. Not always, obviously. Right. but. Um, in this movie, they were just there to be rescued, I'd say. I mean, yes and no. I, I, I think the the wife of the the military officer, Louise Platt's character, she definitely is more one-dimensional like that. But I think Claire Trevor is, I mean, first of all, is a good actor. So she's bringing more nuance, maybe, and more depth to that character than is written. But I think there is a good character arc for her. And that moment with Thomas Mitchell where she feels like she somehow needs to ask this man for permission to like be happy. And he tells her like, why are you asking me? I feel like there is an arc for her there for realizing that she can pursue her own happiness. She doesn't need to like carry this shame around just because the, the league of decency or whatever it is that kicks her out of the town at the beginning has told her that she's unworthy. So I, I feel like there's more to that character. It's always the good upstanding people who, make the other people feel like crap for what they do. Right? Yeah. And I think that's, that's a message that is coming through here. That's a more progressive message. And I did also appreciate that, that, that banker has one speech at one point early in the film when he's complaining about the government regulations. And he even says something like America for Americans. And I'm like, Oh, yeah. this guy sounds like a modern Trump supporter right now. You're, you're I wrote right. that down too. He, he even says, uh, what we really need is a businessman for president. Yes, exactly. That's right. Exactly. exactly right. The line. Yeah. yeah, that's great. He does say that. And uh, man, did that ever work out great. for all <laughs> Right. But, America, but so. even in 1939, the guy who talks like that is depicted as a corrupt villain who gets arrested yeah. at the end of the film. Shockingly, yeah. he, he was breaking, the law right. you know what a what a shock yes. there um i'm gonna tell you a major problem i had with this movie josh okay. okay so um the ringo kid breaks out of prison because he heard that the plumbers luke plumber and his brothers had killed the ringo kid's father and brother so he vows revenge right yeah. so that's the reason he goes on the stagecoach that's the reason he's all in on all of this there was like a very brief moment where he was ready to give it up for Dallas, but then he feels like he has to go through and have this showdown and, you know, get his vengeance. And uh, we never see it. It's so frustrating. I'm like, oh, cool. We got our big chase sequence. Now we're going to get our, you know, big act three high noon shootout. And we never get the shootout. We just get the after effects of it where he's like, hey, I'm back. Uh, I killed all three of them. Let's get. Let's go down to Mexico now. You know, so Man, your Andy Devine I, impression was better. Way better. I agree with you. But um, I thought that was meat on the table right there, man. I, I, don't you want to see John Wayne in a shootout with these guys? I mean, John Wayne is 
done plenty of shootouts and plenty of movies and is good at that. But I totally disagree with you. I think that not showing it is a very deliberate choice that is important for the character that he enters the movie, like you said, with this laser focus on this one thing. I need to go kill the Plummer brothers. They have killed my father and brother. I need revenge. Revenge is the only thing that's important. I don't care if I'm going to go to prison. I don't care if I'm going to die. All I have to do is avenge my family. And over the course of the film, he falls in love with Dallas. He starts to envision a future for himself. He, you know, kind of has more connections with other people on the stagecoach. And that revenge becomes sort of this hollow rote thing. And he still does it. But by not showing it, Ford emphasizes how little it matters at this point. So I totally disagree with you. I mean, I thought if, if it mattered so little, he would have just given it up when he had the chance to. And, you know, because there was plenty of times where they're like, you don't have to go. You don't have to do this. You could leave right now. So the fact that he goes through with it means that it has to have some amount of importance to the character. And I just felt like, you know, especially with the idea of, you know, uh, we're reinvigorating a Western, a genre, like this is a chance to really do it. And you're referencing all these other shootouts that Wayne was in. This was the movie that made him. Well, this is the one I want to see. It well, in. yeah, true. I mean, and obviously those other things hadn't occurred yet at the time that this movie came out. I'm, I'm just saying that like, yes, you're right that John Wayne is good in a shootout and it's cool to see him do it, but I'm fine with not having it in this movie. And also because Luke Plummer, I mean, we do see him briefly, I think in like one scene before the showdown. So we get a slight introduction to him, but it's not like he's been built up as a character. I feel like if this was a movie where we had these two rivals and we spent the whole movie learning about the two of them and building up to their showdown and then didn't see it, I would be frustrated like you are. But to me, it's like Luke Plummer might as well not even exist. He's just a symbol or whatever. But he does exist. That's the thing. I mean, but see, I feel like you're speaking in contradictions because you're right. Like we get a, we get very little focus on him, but then they give him like a full scene to himself and he gets the dead man's hand. And it's like, well, I got to go do this shootout now. And it's like, you know, there's that whole huge scene with him and Andy Devine uh, where he where he stops him from taking the rifle to the shootout. Like for a shootout that you're claiming means so little, they've built up to it to the entire movie and put a huge amount of focus on it in the first person in the third act. Yeah, I mean, it's not that it means so little to the plot. I feel like the point is that it's now less meaningful than the life that the Ringo kid can look forward to theoretically with Dallas. And it's just something that he has to kind of take care of or whatever. I mean, I, I just feel like I'm going to, yeah, we're on opposite ends here because if it if it was as meant as little as possible, as you're saying, then he could have just left with her at any point in time. Yeah, but he can't because no matter what, he has to do it. It's like the obligation of Western honor or whatever. It has to happen. Right. Like like Unforgiven, where you get that amazing third act. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just, I, I, I don't think I would have been upset to see the shootout. But I mean, I also felt like the climax of this movie is the chase. And everything that happens after that is sort of a, an epilogue, is sort of a denouement. And I don't need that drawn out any more than it already is. I agree with you that that is the climax, but if another, and that this would have been a different type of battle, right? A shootout's different than a giant chase. Um, so I think they could have done that and added that extra flair on there. But hey, man, that's uh, just like I was saying before, I don't think they treat the Apaches well. And you're like, no, this is an accurate representation of <laughs> no, the no, whites not at American all. Indian. And I mean, I'm only, <laughs> I'm only giving it credit in comparison to films that are much worse 
but I'm I'm kidding. Yes. I know you're yes. not racist yes. against Thank you. Thank you. But no, I mean, partly it's because we don't really see, I mean, the Apaches are just this kind of like faceless enemy, right? They don't have lines and, you know, we don't get any like moments where they're confronting some Apache leader. They talk about Geronimo, who of course was a real person, um, but they don't, they don't actually like have a showdown with them or whatever. And so we don't get the chance for extra racism because these characters don't speak, but but yes, they're depicted as this sort of like monstrous, faceless, animalistic enemy, which is, yeah, you know, obviously incredibly racist. Which we would never do here in America. Um, Josh, I, uh, I I don't know, man. I, I think, like I said, this is ripe for a remake right now because um, there are so many elements that you could modify, modernize, update, change. Even if you were to set it in the same time period, I feel like there's a lot of cool things you could do with this as a story. And uh, one thing we didn't mention is this was actually based on a story there, Josh, uh, written in 1937, correct? Yeah, that's right. It's based on the story, the short story, The Stage to Lordsburg, which was published in Collier's Magazine in 1937 by Ernest Haycox. And I think, I mean, obviously I haven't read that story, but it's pretty common for movies of this era to have been based on like magazine stories and stuff. And they take the like barest of outlines from those and just use it as a jumping off point. So I don't know how similar it really is to that story. I mean, I don't either, but it's still common practice today, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like even more so then, and, and especially adapting things that were just not, you know, it's not like, Oh, this was a, a hugely popular thing that they decided to make into a movie. It's just like looking anywhere for source material kind of thing. Right. So this did lead to a resurgence of Westerns. That was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can see how this would, if you were tired of, especially from the silent era, and a lot of those were cheesy, um, you know, or things like Roy Rogers singing cowboy Westerns or whatever, um, this this would feel like a fresh take on something that you'd seen before. Um, Dave, as a person who is not really into Westerns, how did you feel about this film? And and Dave, let me add also like one for best music and uh, the score is pretty epic here too. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, I noticed in the credits, it said all based on like American standards or something like that. But yeah, no, I, I kind of agree with Jason. Like the action is where it shines, you know, like the character stuff didn't really do that much for me, but like overall I liked it though. And like John Ford really the way you know, some of this camera work goes like it's, you know, it's really exciting. He takes like a, a genre that's generally pretty slow moving and just injects it with a lot of excitement. So all that is really good. Did it make you feel like you would be interested in watching more Westerns? Eh, maybe. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Fair enough. Should we rate Appreciate it? Josh? The honesty. Should we rate it out of five uh, stage coaches? Stage coaches. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say five hidden pregnancies. Right. Yes, of course. Pregnancy, another thing that they couldn't actually show in a movie because of the production code, which gives you this weird thing where, of course, uh, Louise Platt does not look in any way pregnant. And then, you know, her character kind of fainting is this sign that, oh, she's about to give birth. And I feel like this is code or whatever. or These are like shorthand that people in the 1930s would have understood what this is indicating but it does come at a bit of as a bit of a shock to us as a modern audience although it's to be fair it's a shock to the characters too and obviously she's meant to be kind of hiding yeah 
But um, there's a doctor, Josh. Yeah. There's a doctor in the stagecoach. You don't think he would have noticed? Right. Well, he's drunk the whole time. As we've <laughs> that doesn't mean – have you ever gotten so drunk that you're like, I can't see a pregnant – Right. Know, like, well, no one else can. You can still tell when someone's pregnant. No one else can either, as I was just saying. So, I mean, right. It's a, it's a, it's a thing because of the production code that they can't show it. And maybe at the time – women, you know, wearing corsets or whatever it would have been. And then all of these bustles and all of the whatever that they're wearing, it would have been easier to kind of cover it up. But um, hopefully she's not uh, corseting herself so tightly that she's uh, crushing her baby. Hurting the baby. We don't want that, No, no, Josh. the baby's fine. Five hidden pregnancies, Josh. I'm giving it two and a half. Oof. It was three, but you hurt animals. You get a less than that. You, you know, between the racism and the animal hurt, and I drop you down. You're two and a half for pregnancies to me. All right. I give it three and a half. I enjoy this film. I Like I said, I think I might have enjoyed it a little more this time. You like Westerns at all. I mean, if you like Westerns at all, you've probably seen this, but if you haven't, watch it. And even if you're like Dave and you wouldn't want to see a Western, this is this is one of the, you know, five or ten that you would want to check out. So I enjoy it. Three and a half uh, hidden pregnancies out of five for me. <laughs> Dave? <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it's definitely enjoyable. And I, I, I've given it three, although I feel bad now because now I feel like I support animal cruelty or, or something like that. Since That's Jason. about time the truth comes out about you, Dave. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, this is all in the past and we can evaluate it as, as a work on its own. Jason, who is always adamantly talking about separating art from the artist, you know, we can mm -hmm. we can do that under these circumstances as well. Yeah, I know. I just don't want horses to be murdered. I don't either, but they already were. Giving this a lower star rating is not going to bring those horses back to life. <laughs> no, but it does have my my mark of protest on it, and that's what it's really about. Fair enough. We'll come back and talk about the legacy of Stagecoach. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1939, we're talking about John Ford's Stagecoach. And as we've said a couple of times, a big part of this film's legacy, and especially its like immediate legacy, was that it brought the Western genre back to prominence. And of course, that became a major, major part of John Ford's career and John Wayne's career for the next several decades. It's good that um, you know studios were using same idiotic logic back then of like, hey, stagecoach was cool. What's the next stagecoach? Instead of looking for the first of the next thing. It was like, let's just find the recycled version of this thing. Yes. But I mean, to be fair, like the dozens and dozens and dozens of Westerns that were released over the next few decades weren't all just let's capitalize on Stagecoach. I mean, there were many, many successful Westerns after this. That is true. I'm just saying this whole idea of like, you know, um, when, when, you know, Marvel broke big and it was like, hey, we got to do our own superhero thing now, you know, like as opposed to finding your own deal, you're just being derivative of what someone else capitalized on already. Right. And that's true. And, you know, John Wayne, who uh, I'm sure was proud of many of the Westerns that he made, but he did end up getting, you know, kind of typecast here. And while he made non-Western movies, people certainly think of Westerns almost exclusively when they think of John Wayne. I, like I said, Westerns and military pictures, right? Right. right. Yes. So Wayne uh, won the Academy Award for True Grit in 1968. And you know, that's that's cool. Maybe one of those uh, mixes of performance and lifetime achievement, right? Right. I mean, True Grit is is great, is is very good. Although I think, honestly, that the Coen Brothers remake is better. 
And I disagree with that. All right. Well, we'll get into that later, I guess, maybe, or some other time. Um, you mentioned The Searchers, um, which is also a classic. And talk about racist, man. <laughs> um, but certainly a classic. I love The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is another John Wayne, John Ford collaboration, also with Jimmy Stewart, although I haven't seen it in a while. But that's a really... And, and that's one where it's, you know, it's 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 all all the way into the 1960s. And so we're getting to the kind of deconstruction of the the myth of the West rather than just the, you know, simplistic uh, good guy, bad guy thing. And I think Ford makes that transition really well with that film. Josh, and those that you've mentioned uh, were, he didn't win best director for any of those. So that just shows you like what level this dude's working at. He won for The Informer, The Grapes of Wrath, How Green Was My Valley, and The Quiet Man. And it's interesting that, I mean, I haven't seen The Informer, so maybe I'm wrong about that, but it do, I, I don't think any of those are Westerns, considering how closely associated John Ford was, was with Westerns. Right. I mean, Grapes of Wrath isn't a Western, but it is a Rust Belt kind of wide open space uh, frontier in a different way, I'd say. Yeah. Monument Valley, another thing, you know, closely associated with John Ford and John Wayne. And this was the, the first use of that, which he returned to many, many, many times. And they made so many films together. John Ford's final film was in 1966 called Seven Women, which I haven't seen. But again, from the teens until the like mid to late 60s, an astounding career. Uh, John Wayne worked until 1976, his final film, The Shootist. And uh, which I also haven't seen, but I mean, still just the, these, these two guys together and separately are like, just yeah, uh, their own in, in their own industry. Right, right. Right. Or like a whole history of Hollywood just in their filmographies. Right. Well, it'll be the look back of, um, you know, the Scorsese De Niro situation from the seventies on, yeah. um, for a more modern comparison. Uh, Josh Burt Glennon, we talk about uh, uh, people who were nominated against themselves. The director of photography was nominated here for Stagecoach and Drums Along the Mohawk. And then once again in 1941 for Dive Bomber. Pretty good. Pretty good work by him. Um, I mean, we don't necessarily like this is a big cast. I don't know if we want to go through all of them, but, you know, Claire Trevor, who is the kind of second lead here, along with John Wayne, she was never as big a star. I mean, she was a bigger star than him at the time, but she was never a huge star, but worked steadily. And she did win an Oscar uh, for Key Largo uh, for Best Supporting Actress. And that movie is fantastic. And she is so good in that. And and honestly, playing kind of a similar, like a, a more desperate, pathetic version, but a similar kind of character as this, this woman who's been used by men and is now kind of like blamed herself for what men have done to her and is trying to find a bit of redemption. And, and that's a, an excellent movie with Humphrey Bogart and, uh, and Edward G. Robinson. And she's great. I'm going to mark that down there, Josh. I haven't seen it. Uh, she did win supporting actress for that. Also nominated for the high and mighty and dead end. Uh, you and I were talking about how there were multiple radio plays of this and uh, Wayne and Trevor got back together to do one of these, I think in 1949. Yeah, I mean, that was another common thing for movies from this era because radio was still a really big deal, especially, you know, pre-TV, that movies would get these radio remakes, often with some or even all of the original cast. And I think this was done uh, was done three times as its own thing. Uh, Claire Trevor appeared twice and one time was also with John Wayne, was also adapted into an episode of The Lone Ranger 
radio show. Um, so showing you like the versatility of this story, but also just how popular it was that it would be adapted in multiple different ways like that. I mean, the adaptation I want to see is the 1986 television movie featuring Willie, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, and uh, some guy that I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that was <laughs> that was put together as a vehicle for the Highwaymen, which was the, the like country super group that Willie Nelson yeah. and Chris Christopherson and Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings did. And I'd like to see that too, honestly. Like if I'd had more time, it's streaming on, I think it was like the Roku channel or something. And I would have tried to watch it because it sounds fascinating, but I didn't get the chance to do that. Yeah, there's a lot of like fun, weird uh, kind of things. Like in uh, 1990, the US Postal Service released stamps from four movies from 1939. One was Stagecoach. So just a little... Uh, and one was Wizard of Oz, one was uh, Gone with the Wind, and one was Bo Jess. So there you go. Those are the four. All right. Well, we'll get to three stamp movies this season, I think. But uh, And Josh, a lot of these people all work together over and over again, like you said, contract players. Um, we should mention uh, really quickly there that um, you were talking about Thomas Mitchell. You know, this guy, stagecoach, It's a Wonderful Life, High Noon, uh, first first person ever to win the or the first male to win an Oscar, an Emmy, and a Tony. Yeah, he had quite the career. I mean, in some of the biggest movies of all time, also worked a lot on TV and on stage, was a writer too, a playwright and a screenwriter. Just a, an amazing career. We haven't even talked about John Carradine, who plays the genteel confederate, which is another character that we'd probably <laughs> not have in a movie. A today. civilized war. Right. That's why it was called civil. Exactly. It was civilized. Who nobly sacrifice well, who nobly sacrifices himself right before he's about to nobly sacrifice uh, poor Louise Platt's character rather than have her fall into the hands of the savages. So, yeah, I, that was a little confusing to me at that point. Yeah, I mean, I was like, is he just going to kill her? What's going right, on? Right. The idea that if she's captured by uh, Native Americans, she's going to be, you know, raped and or scalped or whatever. And he's saving her from that fate, which was the sort of twisted idea of nobility that maybe people like that had at this time. But um, uh, patriarch of the Carradine family. We've talked about Keith before in our Nashville episode. Um, uh, you know, he was a Cecil B. DeMille stock player and a John Ford stock player. And, uh, he played Dracula a lot. J Dave, I think you would like Billy the Kid versus Dracula. Yeah, that's that a, sounds fun. That's one of those notorious like cult movies for, for being, you know, so bad it's entertaining. And he, he kind of ended up in a lot of those exploitation movies later in his career. And I feel like maybe, you know, because he's the patriarch of that family that his his children and grandchildren are maybe more well known than he is now. But I mean, he he's like was the head of that whole amazing dynasty, which is one of the major acting families in Hollywood. John Ford, you should look up all of the uh, military honors he's won. <laughs> it's like Purple Heart, Presidential Medal of Freedom. He's won tons of, you know, military honors. And uh, when we talked about Ozu, it kind of reminded me of Ford because he's made more than 140 movies and a lot of his silent films have been lost over time. Right. Yeah. I mean, was so incredibly prolific in that era, making shorts and things like that. And then those movies just didn't end up being preserved. But I mean, John Ford still is, I mean, even if people haven't seen his movies, I feel like he's still held up as that, you know, the like kind of man's man director that you talked about, but also just this icon 
of classic Hollywood. I mean, I think about the Fablemans, right? Where the moment that, you know, the Steven Spielberg stand-in character gets to encounter Hollywood, it's because he meets John Ford and, you know, played amazingly by David Lynch in that film. But that's that's yeah. still just recently, you know, like the the archetype of the old Hollywood director. So as you know, Josh, I am a, I have a, a, a love affair with Ireland, mm. the country. And I was reading this book not too long ago about how in Ireland in like the 50s and 60s, American Westerns were so popular because it showed them an entirely different world and everyone wanted to be cowboys. And there is a whole like division of study in Ireland uh, devoted to John Ford to this day. I mean, I believe it. You know, it's it's he's certainly worthy of that study. I want to mention one last thing. Dudley Nichols, the writer, was the first person to decline an Academy Award because he was boycotting to gain recognition for the Screen Writers Guild. Pretty cool. He got it eventually, though. Yeah, and uh, obviously that uh, recognition is incredibly important and carries through to today. Um, I did want to quickly mention, you know, we the, you said the 86 remake with all the country singers. There was previously a 1966 remake that I think is, you know, doesn't have a very good reputation with Alex Cord, who I'm not familiar with, in the John Wayne role. Also, Anne Margaret and Bing Crosby. Seems like maybe that's not the one to watch. And Andy Devine, prolific career also, was the sidekick to Roy Rogers in 10 of his movies and did uh, a voice in the Disney Robin Hood film. Would you would you like to to give us one more bit of Andy Devine or are you you're done with that? I'm too busy eating them free all they beans. That is perfect. <laughs> that is Stagecoach. That is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can uh, send us a, a telegram. Our telegram lines are open and working online and on social media. But telegram's an actual online thing. Oh, yeah, that's so true. That We're not on telegram. Yeah. <laughs> Telegraph lines. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to be on telegram. Yeah. Uh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram, awesome movie pod on Twitter. I'm still Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy. Also, go for Jason on Letterboxd. And Josh, do you know what filmmaker claimed this was a perfect film? Tell me. Orson Welles, perfect textbook of filmmaking, and claims to have watched it more than 40 times in preparation for Citizen King. All right. Thank you for that final factoid, Jason. <laughs> You can find some old stuff for me at joshbellhateseverything.com, including whenever I wrote a little blip about this. So really look for that. Um, I'm one of my old first time watch lists. Big, big, big important stuff there. there. I'm also at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on X uh, Twitter, on Blue Sky, and on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod and check out our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. Jason, what are we doing in our next episode? Hey, Josh, flops aren't just the thing of today. We're going to talk about a box office flop from back in the day. It's the Ice Follies of 1939. A folly indeed. So tune in next time for the Ice Follies of 1939. And thanks for listening to Awesome Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. Awesome. 
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.